Philippians chapter number 3, and we'll begin at verse number 1 and read down to verse number 11. But I want you to notice uh, especially a phrase used in verse number 3. Beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now notice this phrase, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Let's read verse 3 once more and we'll pray. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each heart. Use me now, Lord, in a way that would glorify you. I pray, Father, that each heart would be touched in a particular and in an effective way. Father, help us to be submitted and surrendered to your word and to the leading of the Holy Ghost tonight. And we'll be sure to thank you. Thank you for Calvary, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being long-suffering with us. And teach us to love each other and to love you more. Father, we love you tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this simple thought, no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul says there in verse number 3. Now, I'm interested to note the use of the word circumcision in this verse because Paul is writing this epistle to the church at Philippi. Now, this is a Gentile group of people, but he uses the word circumcision. Is it not that Paul is denoting in this passage that this is a group of people uh, that has entered into a covenant relationship with God through the finished work of Calvary? Is it not that Paul is relating to these people that they have been changed, they have been cleansed, they have been accepted in the Beloved, and though they are not Jews by birth, uh, still they are the people of God. This is what Paul is relating to them. And he is speaking of a spiritual circumcision that takes place. The Old Testament act of a circumcision, uh, the idea of putting away the filth of the flesh, the old man, was merely an outward representation of the inward covenant 
that God would make with a man. In a lot of ways, that baptism to us today is an outward expression of the inward regeneration that has taken place when we are saved. Circumcision was a picture of the setting aside and setting apart and cleansing of the nation of Israel that God accomplished in their life. And so when Paul is writing this, if I could just put it in a simple word, what he's saying to the church at Philippi is he's saying, you brethren, you believers, you've been changed, you've been set apart, and you are different than you once were. Now, this is significant because it's the basis for our entire life. Our entire life is built around this fact of change and transformation. That we're not what we used to be. That God's made us something different. It's not just that we're acting different. We are different. It's not that we're pretending to be different. We've been transformed to be something different. And Paul begins with this basis. And he's going to use one major principle to illustrate this fact. And that is a lack of confidence in the flesh. I spent a little time thinking about this word confidence, and it'd pay us to think about the words that God uses in the Holy Word of God. And I thought about what this word confidence means. Now, most of us know what a practical application of this idea of confidence is, but let me give you three words that stuck out in my mind. One of the things that I see in the word confidence is the idea of trust or anticipation. You see, when we have confidence in something, we are expecting that we can know its behavior. If I was to look at you and say, you ought to put your confidence in me or put your trust in me, what you're saying is, preacher, you ought to be able to act a certain way and I ought to be able to expect you to act a certain way. Certainly, you can't have confidence in a person that's erratic, can you? You have to know that you can expect some things out of them. And then I thought about the word dependence. When we're confident in someone, a lot of times that confidence is relayed through the fact that we allow ourselves to depend upon them. And really, when you say, I'm putting my confidence in someone, you're saying, I have opened a part of my life to this person, and I am going to trust them and depend on them to come through. You don't want to put your confidence in someone that is going to leave you hanging, isn't that right? You don't want to put your confidence in someone that's not going to help you when the time comes. And so I thought about another word, and let me give it to you, and then I'll get to preaching. I thought about the word admiration. When we have confidence in someone, that's usually a quality that we admire. Uh, We look at them and we're saying, I think they are of good character. Uh, The way that they live appeals to me, and I like that person. My confidence has been put in them. Now, if we take those three ideas, trust, dependence, and admiration, and then plug them into what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that we are a spiritually changed people where the circumcision, not of the Jews, but of the Spirit, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. We do these things, and why do we do these things? We do them because we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? The flesh is the old nature. The flesh is the old man. The flesh is that part of a human being that that would act and would always act contrary to the wishes of God. And Paul is saying this, uh, and, and it's interesting that you have these two words almost juxtaposed right next to each other, spirit and flesh, because that's the eternal battle. I have never been more confident in my life than I am at this time, and, I, and I'll probably grow more confident in this fact, that there is a spiritual battle taking place. I can see it in my life. I can see it in my own personal walk with Christ. 
Times when I feed the flesh and the spirit suffers. Times when I feed the spirit and the flesh gets angry. I can sense and see and feel this battle that is taking place. And Paul is saying we have a choice to make. We have been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. We have been changed. We worship God in the Spirit. What is our response going to be to our desires, our inclinations, our wants to the old man? He says we're to have no confidence in them. And then Paul goes down a laundry list. And I want to give you three things tonight. Notice first off the description that Paul gives of his flesh. He says in verse number 4, Though I might also... Have confidence in the flesh. What's Paul saying by this phrase? Paul is saying, if I wanted to, I could trust in my flesh. He's not saying that it would avail him. He's not saying that it would accomplish what he needs in his life. But he's saying, if there's anybody that could think their flesh was good enough, Paul says, it's me. He says, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. And notice the first thing he speaks of. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews. He speaks first off of his roots. He speaks of his genealogy. He speaks of his heritage. And could we say that he is speaking of who he is? He's not yet speaking of what he does, but he is speaking of who he is. And Paul says, if I chose to, I could put confidence in these things. I think there's a particular application to salvation and we can certainly make that application tonight. And I, can I say that there are uh, more than enough people dying and going to hell because of who their parents were, who their grandparents were, the church they was raised in, the background they came from. And I've talked to untold numbers of people that I've said, have you ever accepted Christ? Have you ever been saved? And they've said, well, yeah, my, my daddy or granddaddy was a preacher. Yeah, I, my granddaddy was a deacon or my daddy was a deacon. And they think that that is sufficient. They're trusting in their heritage. But can I go a step further? Because I believe even though Paul is making that application, you understand that Paul is not saying I could have trusted in my flesh. He's saying I could trust in my flesh. Not I could have, I could. So Paul is making this application to the believer. And he's saying if I wanted to, I could trust in who I am to validate my standing with the Son of God. Do you realize it does not matter who we used to be? nor does it really matter who we are. It's all about who Christ Jesus is. And Paul is speaking of his nature, of his, of his heritage when he says this. And can I just make a simple statement in saying that don't think for one moment that you can trust your nature to do the right thing. I know we talk about instincts and gut feelings and, uh, you know, intuition and things of that sort. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, let me give you what will help you more than anything. Whatever it is that you want to do, when you're faced with a decision of right and wrong, whatever it is that you want to do, if God's telling you to do something different, what you want is automatically wrong. And even if you're stumbling through a murky situation, you say, well, preacher, I don't know what God wants me to do, but there's a certain thing that appeals to me. Always err on the side of safety, because there's a good chance that what your flesh wants is the wrong thing. Paul says, my nature, my roots. But notice, look at the end of verse 5. He, he sets into another idea. And by the way, you notice the use of a semicolon there to break aside these thoughts. He says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul says, I could depend on my roots in my relationship with Christ. That I, I just come from good stock and so God is pleased with me. But he then says, I could trust my religion to give me good stock with God or to buy me some favor with 
God. Let me make a, a, and this statement may sound strange to you, but listen, not everything that is of church is of God. Not everything that's religious is righteous. Not everything that wears the name of Christ is really of Christ. The Bible commands us to try the spirits to see whether they are of God. And you know why? Because the Bible says there's many antichrists gone out in the world today. There's a lot of things marauding under the uh, idea of Christianity, under the title, under the banner, under the flag of being Christ-like. You say, preacher, how do I know when something is not Christ-like? When it appeals to your flesh. That's when it's not Christ-like. Now, I'm, I'm not up here to, to preach down every church around, but let me just say that a lot of the reasons that I, that I take issue with, with the contemporary movement is because it's sensual. It appeals to the flesh. It, it appeals to that part of a man that is recreational. And I, you know me, friend. I, I, I think we can have a good time in the house of God. Don't you believe that? I don't think there's anything wrong with having a good time in the house of God. But Paul lays these things beside each other. He says, we worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, but we have no confidence in the flesh. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying that which is spiritual is of God, but that which is of the flesh is of the devil. We have to make a decision who and what we are. And I think it's important that we instill this thought into our hearts and minds and into the hearts and minds of young people today that what their gut is telling them is nine times out of ten wrong. Do you realize that a lost person has no ability to be led by the Spirit of God as far as a personal walk? Now, God is able through, uh, through His sovereignty to do whatsoever He pleases. And I understand that God has used lost people for purposes throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But I think there's a tendency sometimes... I think Christianity, listen carefully, Christianity has adopted this inner light mentality. Uh, that, and you know really where a lot of that comes from? It comes from spiritualism. If you study the Amish faith... Now, you say, preacher, I thought you was Amish. No, I just got a beard. Amen. Uh, if you study the Amish faith, the driving theology behind it is this notion of an inner light, of all men being intrinsically righteous in and of themselves and having a guiding force within them that will naturally lead them into doing good if they will just abstain from doing evil. You know, that's not biblical. The Bible says that every one of us, we were lost and astray. We were without God. We were aliens. There was nothing righteous in and of ourselves. It's not until we've been born again that there's anything indwelling us that will lead us into righteousness. And I think sometimes Christianity has adopted this idea. If it feels good, do it. And you'll hear people say all the time, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. That's not biblical. The Bible says the heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and who can know it? Your heart will lead you astray. Why do they say to follow your heart? Well, that's an attitude of the flesh. Follow what feels good, even if it's religious. Well, Paul says, I could rely on my religion, but notice what he says in verse number 6 at the end of it. He says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, this is going to sound a little funny at first, but listen... When he's talking about his flesh, he speaks of his roots, he speaks of his religion, but he speaks of his righteousness. This is the pride of the human heart. He says, touching the righteousness of the law, touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I've heard it been said before that there was a time when men could attain unto salvation through the keeping of the law, but that's completely anti-scriptural. The Bible says that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
And Paul said concerning this righteousness which is in the law, he says, I was blameless. And yet there he was persecuting the church. Christ said, uh, said unto him, uh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You say, what does it mean by kicking against the pricks? The working of the Holy Ghost, the conviction of the Spirit in his life. Saul was lost as it gets. He said that he persecuted the church, but he obtained mercy because he did it through ignorance. He said, I was lost, I was undone. Saul that was riding on the road to Damascus, if he had died then, he would have died and went to hell. But I've been redeemed and changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But he says that righteousness in the law, he said, I was blameless. There's a lot of people dying and going to hell, not because they're too bad, it's because they're too good. And you say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's, and I know this is kind of novel or, or trite, we might say. Uh, but you do realize that heaven is full only of bad people and hell is full only of good people. The people in heaven realize they're lost and undone without Christ and unrighteous in and of themselves. They confess their badness and God gave them righteousness. But in hell, you have an entire throng of people that thought they were good enough to get to heaven. Paul says, I could be depending on that. And listen to me. That righteousness, that battle with pride and with self-righteousness, that does not end at Calvary. The believer will struggle with self-righteousness. You say, how do you define self-righteousness? That's the attributing of any righteousness to self. You say, well, that's obvious, preacher. Give me something I didn't know. No, you know where that comes from? And I see this a lot in Christianity today. This idea, look what I did. Look what I did. Well, so-and-so did me wrong, but look what I did. Well, such-and-such such needed to be done, but look what I did. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Do you think that's spiritual? Well, let me just give you an idea of whether it's spiritual or not. You know what Christ said in John chapter number 14 about the Spirit of God? He said that He would not testify of Himself. He would speak only of Jesus Christ. Now, if the Holy Spirit of God won't speak of Himself, we know He's not going to speak of us. He speaks only of Christ. You know the difference? And we could let, let's say you've got two people out here, and they decide they're going to go out and uh, witness to people, and they go out and they knock on doors. Let's say they're going to go and, and do a job, a, a work at a church, and both of them do a great job, both of them have great results, but one of them looks and says, look what I did, and the other one looks and says, look what Christ enabled me to do. That's the difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. And this self-righteousness is a plague to the believer. I mean, we, we struggle, I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. This notion that I did this. Look at me. Look at who I am. We ought to just count it the grace of God that He give us enough health and strength to get up and do anything for Him. We ought to just rejoice that He, that he give us the breath to breathe and the life to live. I, I mean, we ought to just be thrilled that we have an opportunity to be in the King's service. Self-righteousness will inevitably lead to discouragement. Do you know why? Because self is not enough of a motivation to do the work of Christ. The only motivation to serve God is Jesus Christ. If you're not doing it for Christ, you won't be doing it very long. Because there will come a time when your flesh will be done with this righteousness facade and eventually it's going to say, all right, that's enough. Let's just do the things that appeal, that indulge the things of the flesh. Paul says, I'm not depending in my righteousness. So we see the description of Paul's flesh. But notice now the dismissal of Paul's flesh. He describes it to us, but then notice what happens. In verse number 7, we see God butt in. But what things were gained to me, 
those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. You know what we see? The first step in his change and transformation. And by the way, I think, I think what Paul is talking about, I believe Paul is giving his testimony here. I believe there's an application for the believer, but I believe Paul is also giving his testimony. There in verses uh, 4 through 6, I believe he's showing us Saul of Tarsus as he persecuted the church. But here in verse 7, 8, and 9, he's showing us Saul that had been knocked off his high horse. And the first thing he describes is repentance. I know that there's a lot of debate, and most of y'all probably are not aware of it. I mean, preachers are aware of it, but the average church member is not very aware of these things. But there's a lot of debate in Christianity about whether repentance is essential for salvation. And you'd be amazed the group of people on either side. You'd be amazed uh, the people that are on either side of that debate and that issue. Let me tell you exactly where I fall on that. And like I said, most of y'all may not care, but... I believe it needs being said. The Bible teaches that repentance is essential for salvation. And I still believe that repentance is essential for salvation. Now, some would say, well, preacher, that is a works salvation. And to them, I would say, no, that is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of repentance. Repentance is an attitude of the heart that fosters or produces an outward expression or change, much the same way that faith is. The book of James goes into great detail showing us how that faith that does not work is not really faith. It's dead. It's of no use. But faith by its very nature is not works. Faith is putting our confidence in Jesus Christ. And that's going to produce an outward change or an outward expression. Repentance is the very same thing just going in the opposite direction. Faith is when we begin to put our confidence in Christ and it produces an outward change. Repentance is when we cease to put our confidence in the flesh, and it produces an outward change. What Paul says is all of these things that were so important to me, and and maybe I'm being uh, a little bit imaginative when I describe this, but I can almost see this, this little Pharisee, this little religious man, Saul of Tarsus, that is so wrapped up in who he is and where he came from and what he's done and all these things. And then in a moment it changes when God shines a light in his eyes. All these things that were so important to him, all these things that he thought were sufficient, that he thought were right, that he thought were righteous, he says, I counted them loss that I may win Christ. These things changed in the value system of my heart. They didn't matter to me anymore. I quit esteeming them in the way that I once did. And everything changed in a moment. And he says in verse number 8, and this, listen, this is where the sinner has to get to to be saved. This is the reason we have a lot of professions without possessions in this day that we live in. A lot of people that talk, uh, but they've not been changed. Because what does he say? Yea, doubtless, and I count, notice these two words, all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. A sinner will never come to know Christ until he counts all things but loss. You say, that's a work salvation. No, that's not a work salvation. His giving up those things doesn't attain salvation for him. But until he gets to the place where he sees himself as hopeless and helpless, 
until he gets to the place where he's not bartering with God anymore. And he's not just giving God a test drive and not just trying him out and not just doing it just as a, as a, as a, as a safety call in his life. But when he really realizes that he's lost and undone, that only Christ can save him when he counts all things but loss. I've said often to people in a salvation message that nobody and nothing is worth dying and going to hell for. Nobody. I mean, listen, our dearest family, I mean, I love my wife, I love my boy, I love my mom and daddy, I love my siblings, but there ain't a one of them that I'd die and go to hell to keep them happy. Not a one of them. And I would hope they wouldn't die and go to hell to keep me happy either. Nothing's worth dying and going to hell for. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying all these things, they just, they just blew away, they just burnt up. Count them but lost that I may win Christ. Look at verse number 9. Notice the change. And be found in... Boy, that's beautiful language. And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. See, this is why the Jews to this day still have a veil over their eyes. They have a righteousness. But it's, they have a zeal, the book of Romans says, but not according to knowledge. They've not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. Uh, they keep the feast days. They keep the, they keep the holidays. They observe. They, they wear the garb. They do all these things. They memorize the Scriptures. They do all of these things. They observe the Sabbath. They have a zeal. But it's not according to knowledge. See, this is why there's a big difference. I've heard people talk about faith. And faith's important. But faith has become one of those words that the world has hijacked today. And every time we have, every, and you'll see it at election time, whether it's local or congressional or, or the presidential election, have you ever known a politician that wasn't a person of faith? Stop and think about that. Have you ever known a one that wasn't a person of faith? How many have you known that you really believe that they knew Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? It's not about faith. It's about Christ. And, and our access to Christ comes through faith. But it's not just about faith. Just as it's not just about righteousness, it's about Christ. Paul says, I had a righteousness, but it was a righteousness according to the law, and it was of none effect. It was vain. It was empty. He says, but when I gave all those things up, it all changed. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He's describing his regeneration, his salvation that has taken place. Now, it's interesting that you know, Paul had a lot of epiphanies, if we could use that word in his life. Paul saw a lot of, a lot of remarkable things. I mean, this was a man that heard the Macedonian call. Uh, th- this was a man uh, that had seen the dead raised. This was a man that had died himself and been caught up into the third heaven. But his, his history that he's writing for himself here stops at Calvary and he moves into another direction. We see not only the description of Paul's flesh and the dismissal of Paul's flesh, But we see the deliverance of Paul's faith. What he says in verse number 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, don't let that verse 11 trip you up. Sometimes people read that and they think Paul's talking about working for his salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, let's read a little further and and he describes it. He says, not as though I had already attained... So if Paul was talking about earning his salvation, he would be confessing here that he's not saved. 
But we know that Paul is saved. He says he's found in Christ. So when he talks about attaining to the resurrection of the dead, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about something different. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. Listen now, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm trying to grab hold of what's trying to grab hold of me. Paul says, I'm trying to grab hold of the purpose that God has grabbed hold of me for. What does the book of Romans say? The book of Romans says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. Philippians uh, chapter number 2, I believe it is, uh, described, or no, at the end of chapter 3, you can see it, verse number 21, where it says, "...who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself." First John chapter number 3 says, Beloved, now we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The whole goal of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is to make us Christ-like. That's why God saved us, to make us in the image of His dear Son, to make us Christ-like. Paul says, I was apprehended for the purpose of making me more Christ-like. He's saying, I'm trying to apprehend that Christ-likeness. I'm trying to grab hold of what's trying to grab hold of me. And that's what he's saying here. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, that's no confidence in the flesh. And reaching forth unto those things which are before, that's one of these days when he's going to be made like into the image of Christ. And we know that Paul already has been. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Sometimes, listen, sometimes when we, when we read that, we make the high calling of God in Christ Jesus to be the prize. Like Paul's saying, I'm, I'm pressing towards the prize, and that prize is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But that's not what Paul's saying. He is describing the prize of this high calling of God. God has called us. God has saved us. What has He saved us for? What is this prize that we might be found in Him and and be like Him and have His righteousness? Paul says, I'm pushing towards that. And he describes this relationship that is taking place. And he ends his history of himself on the Damascus Road. Why? Because ever since then, he's just been pressing towards. He's just been moving further. He's just been trying to apprehend. A lot of things have happened in Paul's life. But what he's trying to get us to see right now is that ever since God changed him, it's been a perpetual striving for the things of the Spirit of God. Notice three things he describes, and I'll close. He speaks first off of the revelation of the Savior. Look in verse number 10. That I may know Him. That I may know Him. That's the chief and greatest glory and goal of the Christian life that I may know Him. I might know more of Him, but not just know more of Him, that I might know Him more. A closer relationship, a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And let me just make a few blitz statements right here. One of them is this. As long as you're walking in the flesh, you'll never know Jesus Christ like you could. You know, there's a lot of people, we wonder why they act so unchristlike sometimes. Uh, You know why? It's because they're not walking with Him. Why are they not walking with Him? Because they're walking in the flesh. Until you lose that confidence, until the flesh becomes your enemy, and you quit making excuses for it, and you quit allowing it to patronize yourself, and you patronize it, and you quit letting it in the door, and you quit letting it take control, until you quit doing those things, you can never really know Christ. 
Now, you can be saved, you can be redeemed, you can be changed. I'm not saying you can't be uh, saved uh, if, you, uh, if you walk in the flesh at times. But you're never really going to have the relationship with Him that you could. Speaks of a revelation of the Savior. Look at the next phrase. And the power of His resurrection. What's the power of His resurrection? Well, in fact, I'm going to read it to you if that's all right. In Ephesians chapter number 1, it may take me just a split second to find it. I didn't intend on reading it to you. But the Bible says this to us. It says in verse number 11, it says, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will." that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, listen, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His Glory. Look down a little further in verse 17. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Listen, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Listen which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, I don't have time to go through all of it, but could I say that the Holy Spirit of God was purchased through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and was bestowed to the believer that He might indwell the believer, that He might change and lead and guide the believer. What is the power of His resurrection? It's the Holy Spirit of God. That's the result. That's the power that has resulted from... Hey, listen, there was people knew God before. Uh, David had righteousness imputed unto him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to righteousness. What changed after the resurrection? The Bible speaks all. Oh, the Bible says in John chapter number 7, when Christ stood on the feast day in the uh, synagogue, and He said, uh, Come unto Me, everyone that thirsteth, and I will give you to a uh, drink of water. Uh, John said, This spake He of the Spirit of God, which was not yet given because Christ had not yet risen from the dead. I'm trying to say that Paul is saying you will never know the power of the Spirit of God as long as you have confidence in the flesh. Until you see the flesh as your enemy, you'll never know the power of the Spirit of God. You'll, you'll, and I'm not talking about power to raise the dead. I'm not talking about power to heal people. I'm talking about the power to get victory over sin in your life, to be a witness to the lost and undone, to see Christ move in mighty ways in our midst until we have no confidence in the flesh. And he gives one last thing, and I'm done. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We see the revelation of the Savior and the realization of the Spirit, but he speaks of the relationship of the sufferings. Let me tell you something. As long as you walk in the flesh, your sufferings are going to seem incidental and accidental. It won't be until you walk in the Spirit that you'll see purpose and providence in them. It's only because faith in the midst of our trials, is a function of the Spirit of God and of faith. The flesh automatically 
begins to ask, why me? Why me? Why me? But the Spirit of God looks heavenward and says, Lord, you know why. You have a plan. You have a purpose. And when we walk in the Spirit of God, there is a fellowship. Because we know that Christ has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, that we have not an high priest which hath not been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, that there's a throne room of grace that we can enter into, and we go into that fellowship knowing that we have a high priest that's suffered the same way that we have. But the only time that happens is when we cease to... It's our flesh that makes us feel sorry for ourselves. It's our flesh. Listen, it's our flesh that asks those questions. It's the Spirit of God that responds in faith and confidence to the Lord. We've got to start looking at our faith and saying, or looking at our flesh and saying, you're a liar. Looking at our flesh and saying, you'd see me buried if you had your way. You'd see me buried in despair and discouragement. You'd see me give up on Christ and give up on God. That's what our flesh wants. We've got to get to the place where we look at our flesh and say, I'm not going to trust you no more. I'm not going to trust what you tell me. I'm not going to trust what you make me feel. I'm not going to trust what you try to get me to do anymore. I'm going to have no confidence in the flesh. And through that, we'll worship God in the Spirit. And we'll rejoice in Christ Jesus.